I had my guitar, I was doing my pre-show warm-up. And I like wandered away from the compound. The compound was like, and there's this, there's this, there's this plywood wall. And it's 11 o'clock. I'm like, I walk into the plywood wall. I'm standing in front of this plywood wall. Going on the guitar. And I see this wall. And for some reason there was a light. I don't know if people were shooting off fireworks or something. I think they were. It was like, it sounded like Beirut or something on the other side of this wall. So it's like really quiet because the compound was back there. I was in this grass and it's like a peaceful, quiet moment up against this wall. And on the other side of the wall, it's like Kuwait or something. It's like, like bottle of rockets and shit. And all these people like waiting for the midnight set and then there's that energy it's like and I thought the wall was gonna like explode it was building up towards this overnight set people were like getting ready and I was like and I remember like bottle rockets and I'm like oh my god this is crazy it was crazy on the other side of the plywood wall from fish guitarist Trey Anastasio there were some 75,000 people who'd endured an 18-hour traffic jam to get to a cow pasture in the middle of the Florida Everglades. In a matter of minutes, it would be a new century, and Fish would begin one of the most legendary performances of all time, a seven-hour set that lasted from just before midnight until just after dawn. But that was only part of the crazy. On After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress, brought to you by Osiris, we'll explore how the Vermont Quartet Fish came to construct a small city in an alligator-occupied swamp. And more importantly, why? Known for being fearless improvisers, Fish's ambitions had always stretched beyond just jamming. At Big Cypress, in the last days of the 20th century, Fish manifested a strange home for their strange art rock. It was the culmination of a 15-year journey that led from a Burlington dorm lounge to a Florida swamp. The three days at Big Cypress would become perhaps the single pivotal moment and first enormous peak of the band's career. If you want to understand the history of Fish, before 1999 and after, and how they would come to transform the music world around them, there's no better spot to focus than the seminal Big Cypress reservation in December 1999. Over the next five episodes of After Midnight, we'll dive into the history of Big Cypress with the band the organizers who staged it, and a few of the people who were there. We'll revisit Alligator Alley, try not to break our collective neck on the surrealistic ice sculpture, and explore Fish's musical language. Along with Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio, we spoke with drummer John Fishman, manager John Paluska, promoter Dave Worland, seminal liaison Pete Gallagher, and many others involved in making Big Cypress happen. Fold up your airboat, it's time to go. Well, Big Cypress was just a twinkle in Fish's eye, another idea came to life. In 1997, the band worked with Vermont ice cream slingers Ben & Jerry's to create the now-iconic ice cream flavor Fish Food. Since 1997, a portion of the proceeds from each pint of Fish Food has gone to the Waterwheel Foundation, Fish's charitable organization. Ben & Jerry's is proud to sponsor this series in commemoration of the band's incredible and unconventional history. To learn more about Ben & Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, you can listen to Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54.
Let's start with a few questions. Why did 75,000 fish fans endure an 18-hour traffic jam to see fish? Why did fish make 75,000 fans endure a massive traffic jam to see them? What were fish doing in Florida in the first place? Why do fish sound like that? Paradoxically, the single answer to all of these questions and more is perhaps the same. Vermont. what fish usually sound like, with drummer John Fishman playing trombone. But it's a place to start, and eventually return to. That piece of music was recorded in 1987 at one of what fish called okipa ceremonies, extended jam sessions that sometimes featured THC-laced hot chocolate, and in that case, held at Trey Anastasio's apartment just off the river in Plainfield, Vermont, near where three of the four band members were enrolled in the tiny experimental Goddard College. Released on the CD version of Junta, the improvisation called Union Federal has fish segueing smoothly from a goofy trombone jam into bliss. It's the sound of a band at odds with the outside world and happily inventing their own. The early 80s were an era of an increasingly slick merger between rock and pop music. It was the dawn of MTV, the height of big hair and spandex. For the members of Fish, serious music students devoted to learning their instruments MTV was like a transmission from Mars, and almost as hard to receive. Cable television hadn't reached Plainfield yet. Around the country, a fertile musical underground was in the process of solidifying into a loosely connected national scene that nourished weirdos of all stripes. A network of small record labels, tiny venues, independent radio stations, and lovingly collated fanzines spread far and wide into bohemian enclaves and college towns across the country, supporting acts far from the usual big city media hubs. New mutant hybrids of underground rock were emerging everywhere, it seemed, in Louisville and Minneapolis and Oklahoma City and Phoenix and beyond. Their bands could be your life, to paraphrase the jazz-punk trio Minutemen out of San Pedro, California. But just like cable television hadn't hit Plainfield, indie rock hadn't quite hit Burlington. Burlington, however, was a live music town. Over the three years the band gigged almost exclusively around Vermont, Fish built their own scene and developed their own sound, a hybrid of Trey Anastasio's prog pop compositions, telepathic improvisation, and an almost pathological need to make people dance to the most irregular rhythms possible. As the band's popularity grew, they transitioned from backyard parties to homegrown festivals, beginning on their friend Amy Skelton's farm in the summer of 1991. In 1996, they staged the Clifford Ball, drawing 70,000 people to an Air Force base in Plattsburgh, New York, for three days of fish and nothing but fish, besides an afternoon orchestral set. The first of Fish's festivals to feature at least five sets of the band, late-night surprises, art installations, and its own FM radio station. Trey Anastasio remembered the start of the band's summer events. There were no festivals when we started these festivals. There really weren't. 
there was, I think Lollapalooza and Burning Man were the only two that I remember, but Burning Man wasn't a music festival and Lollapalooza was a touring event that went to established venues. So we were really making it up as we went along and, and establishing learning by mistakes and improving in terms of traffic flow and, you know, comfort of the fans and doing every possible thing we could, you know, the central square and the map and all this stuff. After the yin-yang peaks of Woodstock and Altamont in 1969, the American Rock Festival timeline had all but sputtered out in the mid-70s, except for occasional boondoggles like the Us Festivals in 1982 and 1983. The idea of escaping society's grid for musical gatherings had started to resurface occasionally, around the time fish were getting going, most notably with a series of non-camping mini-festivals in the Mojave Desert outside L.A., featuring bands like Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets. Known as Desolation Center, the shows would become a direct inspiration on the founders of Lollapalooza, Burning Man, and Coachella. But back east, fish developed their own model drawing from the patient pacing of the local Bread and Puppet Theater and the DIY ethos of the Grateful Dead. With no corporate sponsorship and no VIP packages, Fish created a resolutely independent creative platform for themselves that seemed to scale wherever they went. Though only one of their festivals to date has been staged in Vermont, all of them have channeled its faraway feel, drawing fans far off the grid and into Fish's world. Being on a major label and briefly having a video on MTV are perhaps the only two truly commercial moves of Fish's entire career. While the band's music remained non-commercial in a traditional sense, their path to putting on their own festivals was literally anti-commercial, according to manager John Paluska. I probably was the, the one who led the charge on this. Um, this was back when we were first playing amphitheaters, and I became aware that Neil Young had very strong feelings about this. And I completely got where he was coming from, which was... You know, I'm not here to help sell products. I'm here to have a spiritual experience with a big group of people. This is one of the few places where we can get together and escape the materialistic world that imposes on us in every way throughout our day. Um, And so that really resonated with me and seeing that he had successfully been able to force venues to, you know, like a lot of the sheds just had these big billboards all over the place. You know, you go in there and it just looked like a mall, you know, uh, and it was gross. It just kind of felt, it just cheapened the whole experience to a huge degree. Um, I feel the same way about sponsorships, you know, for artists and things like that. I just always was very proud of the fact that we never had any sponsors or um, never allowed any corporate interest to align with our brand to try to leverage the special mojo we had with our audience uh, for their own purposes. It was too sacred and special to ever allow any corporate interest to participate in that. It started with us just always basically taking Neil Young's lead and realizing, hey, all we got to do is just make it a demand. If we're going to play your venue, every single sign that's advertising Coca-Cola or God knows what else is going to have a piece of fabric hung over it. And for our concert, you ain't going to see it. And we, we even did it at Madison Square Garden. We were able to get even a place like Madison Square Garden to cover all their signage. And, you know, it was one of those things, just like getting 50% of the tickets for our show or whatever. We just made it a qualification, and we were prepared to walk. And we, and we knew we had leverage. So there's a venue in 
uh, outside of Detroit called Pine Knob, which is one of the sort of original amphitheaters and a very common stop. And they had a, they had an extraordinary number of billboards on their thing. And they wanted us to play there. And we and that was the one venue I remember specifically. They're like, no, we're not going to cover them. I'm like, okay, fine, we're not going to play there. And we never played there. Um, just for that reason, you know, I, it really felt different. Our, you know, our shows felt different. It was one of those things where I'm sure that almost everyone in the audience didn't consciously think, Hey, there's no advertising here, but they felt something really different as a result of it. So even though if they didn't consciously put two and two together, they had a, a certain quality of experience that they couldn't have had uh, otherwise, and so yeah, so it was it was easier with our festivals, frankly, because in this in the case of the venues we, we would go to, these signs were installed. People had paid significant money for signage at these venues, and they wanted to have eyeballs looking at them. Oh yeah, and it was like also on our tickets, like we didn't want our tickets to say Coca Cola presents fish at the blah blah blah. No, fish presents fish. It was everything. It wasn't just at the venue itself. It was, it, it was in the advertisements. You know, all these advertisements would have, and it got really hard when all of a sudden all the venues started getting corporate names, right? Uh, that, there wasn't, that was the one thing there's nothing we could do about because it was like, you know, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, it was the Pepsi Center is the Pepsi Center, you know? I mean, you know, we would sometimes still call it by the old name in our advertising. <laughs> You know, like in our newsletter, it was still Great Woods. It wasn't the whatever that it became, you know. So our festivals, in many ways, were the easiest version of that um, because we we weren't covering anything that already existed. We were just simply choosing to not allow it to exist in the first place, you know. So that was in some ways the easiest and most pure extension of our philosophy because it was like, hey, we're building this stuff from the ground up. So this stuff doesn't even get a toehold in our planning. You know, I'm proud of that part of the, the history of my involvement with the band because it felt really meaningful and took actually a lot of effort and a fair amount of kind of difficult conversations. The anti-commercialism was prevalent as Fish planned their festivals, going back all the way to the Clifford Ball, as promoter Dave Worland recalls. The Clifford Ball, the concessionaire that came in, we hired a concessionaire that first year, brought in these big beer trucks, and they're plastered with Budweiser or whatever on the side of the truck, and it's John's go, Dave, we've got to cover that, and I said, I agree, we just go out and get huge sheets and cover it up, then <clears throat> they put up these umbrellas that say Coca-Cola, you know, like the Chinzanos and whatever, these are all Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. Whatever that company was getting in trade, you know, they had to do this kind of signage. And we went up to the company and they said, we said, you know what? Lose those. Lose those or you'll never work for us again. So that we did that from the beginning. I mean, that's that's how that was how deep we dig down to deal with keeping corporate out as much as we possibly could. Um, it's a temptation. I mean, there's money in it. But, you know, we all looked at it and said, look, we're all making okay money. We don't need this extra money to sell our souls, to make it look, you know, we're doing product placement for, you know, for money. I mean, why? Um, and, and I love that. I love that ethos about the band. It was it just it's something that I treasure, you know, because I, I felt the same way. I mean, to me, that the antithesis of rock and roll, to me, is the whole corporate thing. The Clifford Ball was a powerful experience for band and management alike, a realization of something new and independent. John Paluska remembers it vividly. But with the Clifford Ball, 
everything was new, everything was unexpected. It so dramatically exceeded our expectations that um, we were just in this, you know, dream state for the whole thing. It was just remarkable and so far beyond anything we could have ever conceived of leading up to it. And I remember when it ended, um, how hard it was. So I remember being so depressed right after it because it was so remarkable. It was almost too... It was, you almost couldn't even talk about it with people who weren't there. It was kind of like you, you couldn't explain it. And so you're trying to hold on to this thing that's so fleeting and so special. And um, so I sort of made a vow with myself after that first experience of like, when these things are over, they're over. And I'm going to immediately just turn the page and just start working on something new. When Fish began planning what became the Big Cypress Festival, they were hardly vaporware upstarts, like the now infamous Fire Festival, nor were they about to jump any guns, as would crash Woodstock 50. But just because Fish had staged festivals before didn't mean Big Cypress was going to be easy. The original idea that started this whole thing was, ground zero was, oh my God, can you imagine watching the new millennium, which was a big deal to all of us at the time. Yeah that it was going to be the year 2000. This is like something... Can I add this to the conversation? We are of a certain age, and this is something that it's possible that people now, I'm sure it is, anyone younger than us, or especially a decade younger, would not understand that I was 12 in 1976, the bicentennial. This was a big deal at the time. It was like 200 years, our country, we're 12 years old. And a conversation at sleepovers when we were kids regularly was, where are you gonna be when it's the year 2000? We grew up talking about that. Oh my God, I'm gonna be, you know, that seemed like, tonight, like Prince, tonight we're gonna party like it's 1999. It was a thing that seemed, you know, 1984, the, you know, this, the year 2000 is like the future. And it was coming. They, you'd have conversations with me like, where are you going to be in the year 2000? Wow. That's like, we're going to be on spaceships or whatever it is. Or, you know, we're going to have things in our hand that are like walkie talkies that people can talk to each other just by talking into this thing you carry around. That kind of thing. <laughs> but anyway, like, cars that you can go to sleep in that will drive themselves <laughs> with no motor. Just a drivetrain and a computer. I remember, I think as early as 1998. I'm very sure of that because I think there was work that was still being done by the end of 98. Conceiving, as is often the case with fish ideas, they often start as these weird... Um, I think the original idea was let's play outside all night on New Year's Eve. Saying that to John, who was our manager at the time, incredibly talented, incredibly smart, John Paluska, and incredibly caring, who, you know, very anti-commercial. You remember? He used to cover up ads and stuff. He, he wanted to keep fish, you know, as did we. He wanted to keep fish pure, and out of the mainstream and in-house. So we had our own merchandise company, whenever the, the same went for the festivals. The previous festivals had been Lemon Wheel, two in limestone, very far away from humanity on purpose, like as far away in, in the continental United States as you can get, um, in order to keep people's experience 
community and family and warm and, and thought-provoking and all that stuff. Quiet time built into the festival so that people could go, like, you know, experience the art without the boom, boom, boom of a festival. That was all part of the picture. So by the time it got to um, Big Cypress, I think the idea was, can we play in the continental United States outside all night so that the sun comes up and we wake up and it's the year 2000. Y2K was supposed to happen at the time. All the computers will be off, the world will come to an end, but we will all be together having pulled an all-nighter. Planes will have fallen out of the sky. Banks, you won't be able to get your money out of the bank. Remember if people actually thought that? Fish had their night, but what to do with it? The possibilities were vast. At their previous festivals, they'd included strange late-night sets. In 1996, at the Clifford Ball, they'd performed on a flatbed truck adorned with Christmas lights. In 1997, at the Great Went, there was a mutant disco party. Lemon Wheel, in 1998, featured a nearly hour-long candlelit improvisation. But what would become their grandest festival yet required their grandest idea yet. In 1999, grand was zero problem for Fish who were surfing the crest of perhaps the most musically fearless period in their history. It had started in 1997, when the band introduced more than a dozen new songs into their repertoire at once, temporarily dropped many of their classics, and then began their real writing spree. They experimented in the studio with collective songwriting, recording many hours of improvisation and sculpting the most alluring pieces into songs. The period included The Story of the Ghost, released in 1998, and the more abstract Sicket Disc in 1999, drawn from those same sessions. Improvisation had always been an important part of the Fish experience. But, combined with their now annual late-night festival sets, long-form music was increasingly in the spotlight. So when it came time for Big Cypress, they rummaged into their sprawling room of unfinished gags and found just the right one for the moment, a concept that was already old by the time of the Clifford Ball in 1996. But like any good fish jam, it existed in many different iterations, according to John Fishman. You know, the Baker's Dozen was like a, a, this sort of long-running joke that kind of stayed around. And, and Big Cypress was the result of another one that had, been, that had been lingering for years, which probably started very early in our career, was, was the, the LG, we called it, the long gig. And they were going to, um, you know, the idea was, oh, and it was, I mean, there, was, there were all kinds of... Uh, formulations of this idea. There are all kinds of versions of it. Almost every person in the Fish organization remembers different realizations of the LG. Here's former road manager Brad Sands. Yeah, so we had always talked about this sort of the LG, we would call it, but the original idea for that was to play it somewhere indoors and, you know, like, say, like the Worcester Centrum or something. And people would, you know, you'd go into the show not knowing it was the LG. And, like, you know, the idea was that they would just keep playing. And, like, you know, that no one would know when it was going to end. And it was, But our plan all along was to do 24 hours. That was the original idea, which, you know, would have been really cool if we'd ever, like, pulled it off. Only a few months after Big Cypress, Trey Anastasio explained his version to intrepid reporter Jefferson Waffle then reporting for Relics. We did talk about doing a show in an arena uh, somewhere. And what you do is you you, you half full it, you half sell it. So it's about half full. And black out all the windows, right? <laughs> uh, 
everybody comes in Friday at regular concert time. And we start playing. And we play until Sunday morning at about 7 o'clock in the morning. So basically you go over, you, you lose an entire day. So you go in at night, right? It's pitch black. And we were even talking about having everybody surrender their watches and stuff. <laughs> you know? And so nobody knows, has any idea what time it is. There would be food, but it would be, you know, we would do weird, weird things like, you know, you serve the wrong food at the wrong time. Like, you know, you serve breakfast at like, at like six. You know, seven o'clock on Saturday night. So nobody has any idea what's what's going on with time whatsoever. And you know, this comfortable place. The reason it'd be half full is because then the rest of the room would be decked out with like padded places to sit. And the other rule would be the other idea that we had was not to tell anyone that this was going to happen. Just let them in for the concert. And then start playing. And then you can leave if you want, but you can't get back in. That's like the one rule. They'd be kind of screwed. Well, there's a bank of phones. There's one bank of phones, but there's a security guard next to the phones. And you can make one phone call, but the only thing you can say is, I'm not going to be there. You can't say anything else. You know, I think it, that idea had grown to, we'll, we'll start on like a Friday or Thursday, and we'll just go and we'll put a portal light on the stage. And no one will leave the stage. We'll, we'll even have food brought to us. We'll have, you know, we'll have snacks or whatever. We'll have, you know, some nutrition. We'll have coffee. We'll have a portalette. No one leaves the stage. And, and somebody at all times has to be playing something or talking or whatever. Like someone has to be present on the stage, enga- engaging the audience in some, in some manner <clears throat> or you know, tuning their instrument or something. You have to be, you know, alive and playing and, and, and on stage still in performance mode. And and we were going to do that as long as we physically could. And we were going to try to outlast the audience. We're going to see if we could stay. We could be on stage until literally everybody had gone home. They had just left. It would have been left to the detail-oriented John Paluska to actually organize the many details of the LG. That was talked about for a long time, and, you know, obviously I don't even need to start listing all the logistical complexities of staffing and how do you keep it a secret and have all the staff prepared to be there and the security and all of the other, you know, basic necessities of managing a crowd like that for untold number of hours past the regular duration of a concert. Um, So that never quite came to pass despite hours and hours of discussion and hilarious conjecture about what would actually happen. You know, it, so it stuck around for so long. And then when Big Cypress came up, it was like, oh, oh my God, we could, this is our opportunity to do a version of that. And outdoors, on New Year's Eve, but what, what, what better way, you know, and, uh, you know, okay, it wasn't, 72 86 90 you know 112 hours or whatever but you know it was it was that was i thought that was a good first step we'll we'll go from you know whenever the last set starts to till sunrise you know and and that'll be i think it was originally we were going to go from dusk to 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 daylight that didn't happen but the seeds of that kept you know percolating and when it came time for this Millennium show, a more realistic but still ambitious version of that 
took much better hold, which was we're going to go on at midnight or a few minutes before midnight, and we're going to, this is we, meaning the band talking, and we want to play until the sun rises. And so that immediately gave us a fairly limited number of options in the end of December. We knew it had to be in the United States because we didn't have enough popularity to do it anywhere else. Um, And that's where all of our core audience was. So it was either Southern Florida or Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii. In the 1990s, when Fish's music was spread across a few albums and many hundreds of live tapes, there was a code to crack. They gave their festivals cryptic names, rearranged their repertoire like a deck of tarot cards, and created multiple layers of literal and symbolic secret languages. In that way, Fish became an energy source that began to power the first glimmers of Web 2.0, filled with constantly changing content and community building tools. One source for information about Fish, then and now, was Andy Gadiel's Fish page, which, in the pre-social media era, featured an indispensable rumors page filled with juicy gossip and lore, some small percentage of which might actually prove to be true. There were people online, there was the Fishnet, there was Rec Music Fish, and it was really a, a perfect storm of convergence for fans that were hungry for information. There's a certain, say, geekery about fish where it's sort of a puzzle and it's a, they've got quirky lyrics and non sequiturs and they make you think and, and it's fun and they make you feel. Andy would go on to found Jambase, but wasn't afraid to turn his Michigan State University site into a well-trafficked rumor mill. If you pointed your worldwide web browser to Andy's Fish Rumors page in early 1998, you'd find a whole host of fascinating tidbits. Here's one. Apparently, Fish recently performed a record-setting 24-hour jam at a friend's home in Vermont. No tapes will be circulated for now. Not true, by the way. Fish New Year's millennial rumors started, I think, even before New Year's 98. It was. It seemed like they were really prepping ahead, or we could start to hear the buzz. Here's an early rumor. New Year's 1999 planned for a free show in a field in Florida. It was surprisingly close to accurate, but also completely misinformed. It was a long road to Big Cypress. By the summer of 98, Andy had sourced a hot rumor about the band's investigations into Hawaii, and soon Rec Music Fish was abuzz with conversations about whether or not fans could afford to even go to Hawaii. Destination concerts hadn't quite been invented yet, and Fish's 1990s fan base operated inside a less luxury-oriented economy, at least on the surface. More about the finer bohemian pleasures of grilled cheeses and cramming into motel rooms than all-inclusive getaways. In fact, the band was looking in Hawaii. Some rock bands have lost albums, but Fish in Hawaii might constitute the band's biggest lost festival. As Trey and manager John Paluska recall it, the location was picture-perfect. Well, I think the first idea was to do it in Hawaii. John was with Chip Hooper, our booking agent, and probably Richard, trying to find some place where this idea could become a reality. And I think the first spot was Hawaii. And we were going to do the big kahuna, 
Yeah, that's right. The big kahuna, it, 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 we, we really got pretty far down the road. There was a ranch that a family owned on Kauai that was actually where parts of Jurassic Park had been filmed. And it was an absolutely incredible piece of property. And Bob Barsotti, who worked for Bill Graham Presents, um, was the one who found it. And he's one of the original folks from Bill Graham, uh, the, the big San Francisco promoter, for those listening who don't know who they are. He was legendary for finding all kinds of interesting sites for all kinds of events going back many years. Anyway, so he found this really interesting site, and we got pretty far down the road with it, and even to the point where ultimately wanted to do it there. By November 1998, a Hawaiian public radio station confirmed that Fish were working with Bill Graham Productions, looking at the possibility of using the Kuloa Ranch on the windward coast of Hawaii for a three-day festival to be attended by a projected 20,000 people. And the way I remember it is that John put holds on a whole bunch of airplanes and then started realizing that transporting that many people to Hawaii was not going to... There just aren't enough airplanes. You couldn't get them there. Unless it was very small, like 2,000 people or something like right. that. That wouldn't be fair because a lot of people wanted to go. But it wasn't only a matter of access. Got shot down by the family who collectively owned this. There was a number of different folks involved. Ironically, one of the people who was an owner of a part owner of this land who had a voice in whether or not they were going to give the green light to us doing this event was living, lived in southern Vermont. I took a drive down there and I had a whole long meeting with her. She was very resistant to it. It was an awkward meeting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And ultimately they had their board meeting or however they came to their decision and said, sorry. In retrospect, it was the best thing in the world that they said no because we would have done way less people and logistically it would have been way more complicated. It would have been probably really amazing for whoever actually made it there, but um, it, it, you know, it opened up the door. The rumors continued to swell throughout the year, including one that placed fish at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. But there was one that didn't get out, according to Trey Anastasio. We were riffing, and we were in the airport, and I was sitting across from John Fishman, and he was reading this book, and he always reads this historical books about Lincoln or whatever it is. He's very obsessed with this stuff, and he talks and talks and talks about it. And he was reading this book about some World War II, you know, ship that sank, and the guys had to, you know, eat the dogs, eat the rescue dogs to survive and stuff, and he kept talking about it. And he was sitting there reading this book, and I looked over, and it was called Abandoned Ship. And... I was looking at it, and I thought, oh, my God, a band on ship. The band on ship didn't happen. But in April, the Los Angeles Times reported that fish had shifted their attention to Southern California. The Glen Helen Blockbuster Pavilion is a likely site, as it has campgrounds for the Vermont band's fans, many of whom follow the group around the country, it noted. We looked at uh, a site in Southern California uh, where they had done the Us Festival, I believe it was. I remember going out and visiting that site. We, we, we looked at a bunch of sites. It was a fairly, and it got, to be honest with you, it got increasingly more desperate. It was like, 
was getting a little, it was getting a little close. It was like, shit, we still don't have a venue. <laughs> you know, we kept sort of getting excited about something. And it was like, once we locked on to one, we, we, we would kind of focus on it for a while and not, you know, be developing the possibilities at four different things simultaneously. So we'd get locked into one, try to try to make it happen, and then either conclude on our own that it wasn't going to work or basically hit a wall with whoever had to give permission on the other end. It was then that the band turned to a familiar face, Dave Worland. Based out of Boston, Worland and Great Northeast Productions had been working with Fish since 1993. In 1994 and 95, they'd presented the band at the Sugarbush Ski Resort in Vermont and outgrown it. Whirlin became perhaps the most hidden force behind Fish's festivals, helping the band successfully organize the Clifford Ball, the Great Went, Lemon Wheel, and Camp Oswego. It was it, probably in the spring, um, maybe as late as June, but probably in the spring of 99. You know, and at that point, we were deep into planning Oswego, um, and we were hoping to have something to do with the millennium but if not we assumed they would do something at madison square garden with something indoors and then we were told that the band was going to do something in hawaii was their hope um with bgp and as much as i was personally disappointed um i felt that of all the promoters in the country the, the one promoter that would get it that would do it right would be bgp so we said all right so so it goes well i got a call one day from chip hooper um who was Fish's longtime agent and, and, a, and a great supporter of my office and a good friend. And he said, Dave, um, we may not be able to do this thing in Hawaii. If you were going to do it, where would you do it? And I said, well, in the continental United States, there's really only three places that time of year that would make sense, California, Texas, or Florida. And obviously California is BGP's backyard, so you know we certainly wouldn't endeavor to try to look there. Uh, and Chip volunteered that Texas was not a big fish destination at the time. I mean, maybe it is more now, but at the time, you know, the, <clears throat> most of the fans were either West Coast-based, maybe Colorado, certainly, and, and East Coast. Um, so it came down to Florida. And he said, well, where would you do it in Florida? And I said, well, I don't know. We'll take a look and see. So that's, that's how that started um, and figured out that there was a lot of open land where cattle were grazed and there was agriculture, sugarcane was grown and so forth. It's a lot of land it kind of around Lake Okeechobee in that general area. So the first thing was to go down to Okeechobee and take a look and see what was there. We looked at a, at a um, abandoned uh, subdivision that kind of was interesting, but it, it didn't really, it didn't, it didn't check all the boxes. Then we walked around the berm around part of Lake Okeechobee and kind of try to figure out if there was some land there that would make it make sense. That didn't quite work, but it was aesthetically nice to be near a lake. The Chamber of Commerce sent Whirlin and the band to the Curtin Ranch. But those plans evaporated just as quickly after a local sheriff started an anti-fish campaign. Though the county administrator praised Fish's, quote, relatively tame antics that set their shows apart from those of other entertainers, end quote, the anti-fish campaign worked. One report cited that the sheriff was worried about drug use, potential bomber anthrax threats, and security problems triggered by Y2K. By the time the band launched their summer tour at the end of June, they still hadn't found a location, and John Paluska definitely had a right to be worried. And there was a big city park 
And that was where we were planning to go. And we went there to look at it. Dave Worland was there. He's the one who found all the sites for us in the Northeast, like, you know, Clifford for the uh, Plattsburgh Air Force Base for Clifford Ball and Loring Air Base. Those are all developed by Dave. Uh, first, first and foremost, he's the one who brought those ideas to us. He was down there, and we, we, we had a gig in Atlanta around the time. He flew down there. Richard and I flew down from Atlanta, and we went to this place, and it was like, ah, this, this isn't going to work. It wasn't big enough, and there, I th- there were some other issues with it. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but somebody there suggested the big site. Like, when we were already down there, it was a kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing, and somebody suggested we consider the Big Cypress Reservation, which up until that moment hadn't even been our ra- on our radar at all. Dave Worland picks up the story. So one of the nice women in the tourist office suggested that we take a look at the one of the Seminole um, Indian reservations. Uh, they had four or five in Florida. I think they still do. And the nearest one to them uh, is called the Brighton Reservation. And because it was uh, Native American land, it would not be subject to the sheriff, uh, at least once the fans were on the land. So that shut that box. So we went and we met with the tribal elder who was in charge of that reservation. Um, and he was not against the idea. Uh, he sh- we toured it. Uh, we had Actually, John Paluska flew down um, along with John Langenstein, who was then the security chief for, uh, for fish. And we looked at that, and, and we felt that it was doable. But the tribal elder said, I can't negotiate with you or give you any approval. It has to go through the chief of the entire Seminole tribe in Florida, which was Jim Billy. Where's Jim Billy? Well, he's at Big Cypress. We'd like to meet with him. Okay, go to Big Cypress, go meet with him. So that's what we did. Um, When we met with uh, Chief Billy, uh, he was a little skeptical. He hadn't really heard of fish. There was a fellow that worked uh, worked for the tribe named Pete Gallagher, who was familiar very much so with fish and convinced him that it was definitely worth talking to us. Once we knew that, <clears throat> we, we, we felt that, that there would be support to do this uh, at the Brighton um, Indian Reservation, we started engaging Jim Billy in a conversation, which led to him saying, well, why don't you, why don't you do it here, Big Cypress? Um, and John Paluska and I looked at each other thinking, well, hey, <laughs> That, that's the jackpot. I mean, you know, that's the brass ring to do it here. But he, he said, look, let me give you a tour. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, but Chief Billy is a decorated Vietnam War veteran and a helicopter pilot um, and unbelievably charismatic. Um, and he took us up in a helicopter, flew us over the, the reservation. Uh, and once John and I looked at each other, I said, okay, we know where the venue is going to be. We figured out where the stage is going to be. We saw where the camping would be, the gathering area, the parking. I mean, it was it was perfect. There was, I think, a couple places in Florida that Chip Hooper and John and, but the this one just was perfect. And it was a sovereign nation, no police at all. They had a lawyer, kind of a country lawyer, you know, Florida country lawyer. I think his name was George. He was a really nice guy, folksy guy, really pleasant, and and really helpful, but ultimately he had no decision-making power. And he represented the tribe, and the tribe was the chief of the tribe was this guy, Jim Billy. Um, he, may, he may still be the chief, I'm not sure. Um, and 
we were, again, getting down to the wire and, and trying to negotiate a deal, and Jim Billy was nowhere to be found, and George couldn't reach him. And again, this is a, these are the days when basically, I, I don't remember, 99, I mean, there was obviously internet and all that, but it wasn't, and there were cell phones, I guess, by then, but it just, communication wasn't like it is today. And he had all of this stuff going on in South America, or Central America, Nicaragua. Um, he had his own private G4 jet. It was just surreal. It was like, we're trying to reach this guy. He's in Nicaragua. He's got no clue. You know, he doesn't really want to be bothered with this. We're desperate to lock this thing in. We're so excited about this venue. It's so perfect. And we're dealing with this flaky, impossible to reach tribal chief who is who's got other things that are much bigger priorities. And this went on for a little while, trying to just just pin them down and just get a deal that felt solid enough where we could, you know, hang our hat on it and move ahead with, with planning for the event. But that was a pressure cooker. <laughs> it was really, truly down to the wire. And if that one had fallen through, I don't know what we would have done. We probably just would have ended up in an arena somewhere or something. Yeah. I and mean, that was kind of our, our last straw. And that's why we were so vulnerable. I mean, what he didn't realize, of course, gallivanting down around Nicaragua was that he had completely had us by the balls. You know, I'm sure we lined their pockets pretty well as it was, but um, they had more leverage than they realized. I think we were even looking at like um, a couple of the big football stadiums in Florida now that you mention it, as sort of just a ripcord in case nothing else could work. But that was far, far from desirable. I was raised in the swamp by my old grandpa. We ate turtle meat, a fish called gar. Voice of the Unconquered is the motto of the Seminole Tribune. And it was no idle saying. Only a half decade earlier, Chief James Billy and the Seminoles had won a landmark Supreme Court decision, upholding their sovereignty. He was also known for wrestling alligators, once killing a panther, and being nominated for a Grammy. Pete Gallagher was Billy's assistant, a writer and seminal producer for special projects. He now hosts the Florida Folk Show podcast. Big Cypress Reservation, where the, um, uh, they had a little restaurant out there called Billy Swamp Safari. And I, uh, somebody called, contacted me and said, hey, man, these some guys from a rock band are out here looking for a a place to do a concert, you know. Anyway, I I got up a helicopter and we 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 went up in the helicopter and uh, flew all all over the reservation. It was just it was just a perfect situation. One road in, one road out, and uh, that's where that's where it all all began, you know. And um, it was crazy. They I think they paid a million dollars to the tribe. Well, I was uh, I was uh, a special projects uh, writer for the for the tribe. Uh, I worked directly for the chief, and they and I was assigned to be the liaison between the the, the concert and the and the Seminole Indians. I would I, I would just try to help them get get what they needed to get, uh, and to find a a piece of property to have it on, work out a deal with the farmer. You know, Beth Montori Rolls worked for the band's Dionysian Productions and was part of the team that began to look into the sites for the Millennium Festival. As she remembers, they got the bad weather out of the way early. Site visit that we took down there, there was a hurricane while we were there. <laughs> and we had to all leave early, we had to vacate. We went to different coasts. Even so, it was practically love at first sight 
as former road manager Brad Sands says. Yeah, it was all their land, and the whole thing about the reservation, which was very attractive as well, is you can kind of, you know, it's, it's not subject to the laws of the outside world, in a sense. Perhaps unsurprisingly, hippies had figured out exactly this loophole 40 years earlier. After Jim Morrison exposed himself in Miami in March of 1969, local police began to crack down on rock shows, including a cancellation of a Grateful Dead appearance that spring. In response, the Heads partnered with the Hollywood Seminoles and staged the two-day Big Rock powwow in May of 69, featuring the Dead, Johnny Winter, NRBQ, and a supply of fresh Florida orange juice, dosed to the pulp with LSD by Owsley Stanley. Perhaps equally unsurprisingly, few of the Big Cypress Seminoles seem to remember the connection in 1999. The Seminoles of Big Cypress weren't entirely strangers to hosting concerts, though, as Pete Gallagher recalls. Uh, so we came up with the idea they have a, a big rap uh, series of concerts at rodeo arenas at um, Big Cypress, Brighton, Immokalee. And we had everybody from Little Kim and Wu-Tang Clan and... Red Man and all, all the all the big acts of those days, you know, and uh, and that was pretty wild because um, you know here's Little Kim, a bunch of really profane songs, you know, just, <laughs> but uh, I have a lot of good pictures of her, with, you know, standing standing with the Seminole Police. It was at the Rodeo Arena, which was uh, uh, about a mile and a half or so north of where the Fish concert was. To manager John Paluska, it all came as an enormous relief. By the time we uh, found Big Cypress, we were down to the wire, um, just in terms of getting it locked in and having enough time to um, get all the arrangements in place and publicize it and have enough time to sell the number of tickets we were trying to sell, especially to a really remote location in, a, in an area of the country where we really didn't have a whole lot of fan base. Fish finally got their sight in place. The band was already out on the road for their summer tour, which included a mini-festival called Camp Oswego, two sweltering days and nights at a county airport with just over 50,000 fans. There was no late-night set, just regular old Fish, with the festival template they'd now nearly perfected, and their attempt to get into the Guinness Book of World Records for the most people doing a dance at the same time. The attempt failed, but it set Fish up for their next move. So it was that Trey Anastasio began the rollout of Big Cypress from the stage a few days later in Columbus, Ohio. Sometimes, too, maybe on New Year's Eve, we're playing on New Year's Eve in Florida. If you guys all come down. That's right. Outdoors. Um, New Year's Eve is going to be outdoors in Florida. And as many of you, you know, we're going to spread the, the gospel of the beat stick starting now. So everybody's going to learn the beat stick. At some point, there will be more The next night, in Rome, New York, the Woodstock 99 festival erupted in chaos. The crowds are blowing up CO2 tanks from the tractor trailers. They got the troops in there with riot gear. They're forcing everybody out. Mass chaos. Mass chaos. It was MTV and the world outside Vermont writ large. All the stupid parts of rock and pop come to a synergistic boil. The Clifford Ball and Camp Oswego and all the rest were just to start. A few weeks later, once Fish wrapped up their tour, they made it official. It was time to go even further away. They launched Big Cypress with an elegant invitation designed by the band's Burlington neighbors at JDK Design, 
as John Paluska remembers. We made a really special mailer that we sent out to our whole Doniak Schweiss mailing list. Um, it was a big special, it was like the nicest special piece of mail we'd ever put together. And we put a lot of energy into it. There was like a little fold-up pontoon boat <laughs> that, like a, one of those like things you can cut out and it makes it a three-dimensional thing. Like we put all these cool things in it, you know, trying to really, kind of really uh, just get people's imagination stirred up. The description on fish.com boiled the new version of the LG down to a dozen or so words. On December 31st, Fish will begin with an afternoon set, then return to the stage just before midnight and play until sunrise. Mail order postmark dates were set for August 23rd and 24th. Tickets on sale to the general public a month later. $150 each, no one-day passes, no VIP. Just an elegantly designed folded invitation in the mail. With Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles included life-size cutout cartoon mustaches. Fish's Big Cypress Invitation included a cutout airboat, cartoon cutouts of the four band members and an alligator, all ready for action on the high swamps. In the next episode of After Midnight, we take a leisurely drive down Alligator Alley and answer the somewhat painful question of how you get 80,000 people into a swamp. We got here at 6 o'clock. I bet fish will never It's play. 11 o'clock. We've gone six miles. Uh... <laughs> Thanks for listening. After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress is produced by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Tom Marshall. After Midnight was produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Written and narrated by me, Jesse Jarno. Music by Amar Sastry. Production assistance from Christina Collins. Art by Mark Dowd. Thanks to Fish, Red Light Management, and to all interviewees. And a special thanks to all the fans who sent us your stories, photos, and memories. We'll hear more of those in future episodes. We appreciate it. Until next time. <laughs>